you see the guy putting a wee bit of left pedal and can the aircraft just a little bit. And if you're parallel uh, with that wire and uh, you stay parallel, generally that tail is at least four feet away from that wire. You're listening to the Rotary Wing Show, a show for helicopter aircrew by helicopter aircrew. Each episode, we travel the world to hear from the people that fly and support helicopters to learn a little bit more about their stories and pick up some tips along the way. If you want to catch up on past shows or see photos from the interviews, head over to rotarywingshow.com. You can also subscribe on iTunes. Just search for Rotary Wing Show and get future episodes direct to your phone. I'm your host, Mick Cullen. G'day, this is episode 91. Thanks for coming to hang out again from wherever you are in the helicopter world. Like we normally do, we are about to dive into another part of the helicopter operations to help us keep learning more about the industry. Today, we are all about powerline operations. This is another really good example where having a helicopter license is just purely enough to, to get a foot in the door and then you're essentially learning a whole new specialty to actually do the, the work itself. To take us through it, we've got David McColl lined up today. David is currently the Chief Pilot at Rotorblade LLC, a helicopter utility company based in the Eastern US. David himself lives in Florida, and he talks shortly about how he actually ended up in helicopters. Some of the things we cover are networking to get your first job, Powerline patrolling, insulator washing, human cargo ops, platform work, tower transfers, and stringing. If you've had nothing to do with these types of operations before, it can be a, a real eye-opener. The first time, uh, the first ever helicopter I was ever in was a Chinook helicopter when I was a a young soldier, and uh, that was the first time I ever got in a helicopter, and um, I thought it was pretty cool. The first time I wanted to be a pilot, like when I was young, yeah, I always wanted to be a pilot, but it really got embedded to me when I was in. Um, I remember being on this exercise uh, with the military, and we were down in the south of England next to one of the US Air Force bases, and it was a very realistic exercise, being that we didn't really do anything for like four days apart from just getting rained on. Yeah. And uh, I was sitting in my sitting in my backpack, looking up, and these F-15s flew over. And I just looked up and think, man, that guy's probably got it pretty cool. So uh, I started looking into uh, becoming a pilot in the military. That didn't quite work out for me, but it was still something I wanted to do. So um, I got out the military. I did some private contracting work overseas uh, to pay for flight school because um, as most pilots know flight school isn't cheap so um, I took one of those jobs and uh, did that for a few years so yeah I went out and um, did the whole bodyguarding thing for a bit and that paid for flight school and um, I looked at a couple of different flight schools around uh, the world and from my online research I looked at flight schools in Australia Canada, United States, and in Scotland, and um, the UK. Initially, my first choice was actually Canada. Um, just from looking at the pictures and looking at the Google Earth images of it and the reviews, it looked like a good flight school. But I went to visit this flight school, which was in Ontario. I visited it in January, and it was freezing. 
<laughs> and, uh, I don't think I could do that. So um, I ended up going to a flight school in Florida and the staff, they had been in touch with me for about five years prior to actually going to the flight school. I visited a couple of times. So um, I actually ended up going to the Bristol Academy in Tigersville, Florida. And I've stayed pretty local since then as far as um, living. I live about 20 minutes away from the flight school at the moment. And David, were you always going to do helicopters or was it a, a toss-up between fixed wing and, and rotary? Uh, initially, it was a toss-up, but I, I, I got around a lot more helicopters just in my military career and also in my civilian career. It looked a bit more fun. Like Initially, my initial plan was I was going to go to flight school get out and get a job flying EMS because I really didn't know about the industry, I thought, well, I'm just going to get my license and start flying EMS, but I quickly learned that was not the case. I can, um, I can picture you, you know, in the cold of Canada, and then especially if you, as you started up and saying, you know, you're sitting on your pack and then the cold rain in England for a couple of days, I reckon after grunting around England, um, yeah, you're probably sick of the cold weather and I can see you uh, on the beach in Florida. Oh, very much so. Um, yeah, I, I do like living in Florida. I like the hot weather. Whenever I had relatives come over and visit or I meet people from the UK, they always ask, is it like holiday here all the time? And I just kind of smile and say yes. <laughs> all right. Well, yeah. So dreams of jumping into an EMS job straight out of flight school. So what was the actual uh, reality of, of finishing school and then looking for, for that first job? Well, yeah, I, that was my initial dream before anything new. After I did a couple of visits, I found out like, most people go through flight school and this in the states the system built for ourselves is you go through flight school and then you become an instructor you get up to like your magic thousand dollars and then you can start looking at branching out into some of the commercial industries i got pretty lucky when i was in flight school a good friend of mine who i served with he was uh, looking at buying a helicopter at the time and when he was over visiting, I arranged a couple of flights for him in a Bell 206 and in an MD500. And uh, I was blown away by this helicopter. I thought it was absolutely amazing. And he actually ended up buying me, like, uh, for my birthday, he bought me another lesson in a 500 down at uh, Cloud9 Helicopters in South Florida. So I took it up. And when I was coming up to uh, get my CFI, I started applying at a lot of companies that had they had 500s on the inventory. Like they, they didn't use it for training, but they maybe had like a patrol job on the side that they used the 500 for. So I applied at all those companies and I'd also visit them because um, I was traveling throughout the United States at the same time. And I remember very clearly, I got my CFI, my flight instructor on a Thursday and this was a time when they said there wasn't that many jobs around. By Friday afternoon, I had two job offers, both at companies that had 500s in their inventory. So um, I, w I went with a company called Chesapeake Bay Helicopters, which is a good company. They're, they're still around. I started flying uh, pipeline patrols on the Schweitzer. They can get with another more experienced pilot because you've got very few hours when you start. And we flew... Um, we inspected the gas pipeline right of ways all over Pennsylvania, Washington, D.C., Delaware, North Carolina, West Virginia. And I did that up until I got about 500 hours. 
and then I was transitioned into the MD500 and the Bell Q6. And David, very before, before you're too far there, I, I know, you know job market's pretty tough at the moment, but it's never been awesome. What were the, the key yeah. things? What, what do you reckon made the difference in terms of getting those two job offers? Networking. It was all networking. I, um, I had a friend that lived out in Houston. So when I went, so when I visited friends around the US, I'd always find out where the flight schools were and I'd just go in and introduce myself. When I was doing, when I was doing my commercial flight training, there was quite a lot of cross countries to do. It's, it's same with instrument. And my instructor at the time recommended that you need, we need to start doing cross countries to these other airports that have got flight skills and you need to go and start introducing yourself. He said, don't worry about getting an interview at the flight school you're at because they're going to know everything about you by the time you finish training. Don't put your eggs all in one basket. So you really have to, you really have to get out there, find out, uh, get, get to the other flight schools, get to the other employers, introduce yourself and keep in touch with them. And I kept in touch with about maybe six or seven contacts at the time. And I wouldn't say they played lip service, like you, they were nice people, but you could also tell that they, 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 they weren't requiring a pilot at the time. But two of the companies, when I got my CFI, as soon as I got my CFI, I called up everyone and they were all very nice, congratulated me, wished me all the best. And then the next day, two companies had called me back and said, look, we've got an opening for an instructor or we've got an opening for a pipeline patrol pilot. And it, it was nice getting those job offers. And so uh, I'd seen networking is the biggest thing. And it can sometimes be the hardest thing for a lot of pilots because it's, in a way, it's nothing really to do with flying. It's more to do with yourself, your attitude, how you interact with people. And back then, and maybe even still now, I can be a bit, a bit of a shy person. So it's almost getting outside of your box, getting outside of your comfort zone and just going introducing yourself, giving you... Because that's my next question is, you know, is that just naturally how you sort of operate or was that a, like a, a strategy where you actually really had to go out and, and, and you know, beat the pavement? It sounds like that was the, the latter. Uh, yeah, I know. You actually had to go out. Um, because uh, initially, I didn't really know. I didn't know of too many other flight schools around. So my instructor helped me out. My brother, who was well, my good friend that was looking for that five hundred, I had to make some phone calls and find out where there was a five hundred that he could just test fly. So that helped me out. And little things like the Robinson Safety Course, uh, I met some good uh, contacts there kept in touch with all of them. So um, it's getting, it's definitely getting outside your comfort zone because you're going, it almost felt like I was applying for some of these jobs where sometimes I felt I had no business applying for, like I was a flight school student, but we all start off that way. And it's, one of the guys told me it's a case of supply and demand. They may want experienced flight instructor to come in and fill a slot, but they may not get one. It's just getting out there, introducing yourself to people, and um, that's it. Before we move on to powerlines and things like that, I guess now you've been on the other side of the fence where people have been coming to, to you looking for work or coming into the company. Having been yeah. on that side, 
do you have any different advice to people in that initial job stage or that first or second job, or is it still the same thing? You just got to get out there and introduce yourself. Like if you, if you get a resume in email, what do you do with that resume when it arrives, when you open up your, your email in the morning and there's a resume sitting there waiting for you? I'd, I'd still say, it's, especially in the utility world, because it's such a small world, I'd say it's really all about networking. You need to get out and introduce yourself to these people or to these companies. A lot of the companies, not just the one I work for, but a lot of the companies, when, they, when they're looking for a pilot, yes, they may advertise, but they also may put a text message out to like 10 of their mates and say, hey, I'm looking for a pilot. Do you know of anyone? And usually that will bring about a pilot. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes you need to take on the responsibility of training someone. You need to take someone under your wing and train them, especially doing the power line work. Everyone wants someone that knows what they're doing, that they can just get a check out to and send them to work because they've got that experience behind them. But sometimes that's not always the case. Sometimes you need to bring on a new guy take him under your wing, take him under the other pilot's wings and give him the training so that he can succeed. And then he will then be, or he or she will then be an asset to the company. Awesome. I, I took you off track there. So, but I, I just know people listening, you know, it's a huge thing given, you know, current market, but also just for anyone finishing training, just trying to, to get that foot in the door. So I just thought, I'd, uh, yeah, squeeze you for a bit, bit on that sort of gear. All right, so you finished up on the on the uh, sorry on the, on the pipe inspections. Uh, yeah, where'd you end up after that? Well, I stayed with the same company, but uh, the, uh, one of the pilots had moved on. He was going back to he was from Norway, and he was going back there, and they needed another pilot for the power line inspections. So they transitioned me into uh, the turbine aircraft just for the power line inspections. And when you're doing the inspections, you're usually a good safe distance away from these power lines. If, if anything was to happen, you can more or less come straight down uh, into the right away, or if you've got an area that you can land and you can get in there, you're not so close to the power lines when you're doing inspections that they're, they're going to be a factor as such. Yeah, I started doing the power line inspections. That also included doing um, LIDAR inspections where you fly over the power line about 800 feet. And you have to maintain a certain uh, airspeed, certain altitude. Your your bank angle can't be too great. If you come up for a steep turn in the power line, you can't just make the turn because um, the unit below the aircraft will just completely miss the power line. So you need to fly off the end of the power line, make a big circle, and then rejoin it. So let's let's tackle the patrol work first and then you know there's all these different aspects to power line work so if we we dive through each one and just cover quickly a little bit more in detail for each one so the patrolling you were doing did you yeah. have your own observers on board uh, was it a, a power line company people would come up where they you know have a dslr camera with a, a big lens on it how did you actually do the patrolling in terms of what it looked like well, um when, when i started doing the patrolling 90 percent of the time it was one of our observers in the company and they've got a set of gyroscopic stabilizing binoculars and uh, a nice camera with them so a lot of the patrolling was done just eyeballing like um they're eyeballing they're looking at the power line they're looking at the hardware on the power line the attachments of the power line 
and the pilot is just there to fly. You're, you're not looking for anything wrong with the power line. You're just looking to stay away from the power line so you're not going to hit anything. Your observer, they've got their camera, their gyroscopic stabilizing binoculars, and usually what you do is you come to a hover by each structure and get both sides of the structure. And sometimes that can take like a minute, sometimes it's five minutes in the hover, about 100 feet, 70 feet. And your observer is just looking out, looking at each individual section of the power line and the hardware associated with it. And how do they record that? So each power pole, you know, kind of has like an individual number, but were they, they have a GPS unit on top of the camera? Uh, were they going, just making notes on a, on a piece of paper, yeah. or an iPad? How did, how did it look? A lot of the time, clients would give us a GPS track of the power line. They'd give us a file and it'd show up um, on Google Earth or any of these mapping or imagery applications. It'd show where the power line was and that's where we'd get our structure numbers. And a lot of the time it was a, a keyboard and a piece of paper. They'd write down the structure number and write down what was wrong with it and any associated picture numbers. That was the nice thing about being a pilot. Once you finish for the day, you clean up the aircraft and you're done. These observers finish for the day and they've got probably about four hours work ahead of them. Yeah. The report. Well, it captures so much data. Like, well, we'll talk about the, the LIDAR stuff shortly, but yeah, the, some of this work is, is capturing huge amounts of data and photos that you often then go transfer to the customer. We're talking, you know, like 500 photos in a day. They're all like four or five megs. It's, uh, there's a lot of background stuff other than the, the flying. Yeah, there is so much of it. We recently just did inspection in Florida and the observer we had, she was she was working at least four hours every day after we stopped flying. And then after we finished the inspection, she still probably had about 10 to 14 days worth of work of just writing up these reports and putting the photographs in the report associated with the power line about the structure. All right, so just to finish on the patrolling then, so you, it's what, like about 40 knots, hover at the tower, go to the next one, hover again? Is that the sort of the, 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 the setup? Um, yeah, um, it depends on the line. A, a lot of the times you won't even get to 40 knots. You maybe get like 20, 30 knots, and then you're slowing down to come to a hover on the next structure. It, it depends. There's two types of patrolling. There's a comprehensive inspection patrol where you slow down and you come to a stop like a hover at each structure and the observer looks at each individual portion of the structure, all the hardware, the bolts, the pins, everything. And then you've got your patrols where you're maybe going about 30 knots and you're not stopping at the structure. That's you more looking at the bigger picture. You're making sure, uh, making sure that no wire has come down the insulators are more or less intact. You're not getting into too much detail on the faster patrols. The comprehensive visual inspection patrol, that's where you actually slow down and you're looking at all the individual parts of the power line. And what sort of support crew do you have? Like, How do you, you plan your refuels? Do you have a truck following you along? Sometimes we've got a truck. The last one that we did, we did have a truck and... We were told it would take us about a month. Actually, only took us about two and a half weeks because of this coronavirus. It shut down. Um, the place where we were working, it was down in the Keys. 
and the places that we were working, we had access to a number of landing zones that most of the time we would not have access to, like parking lots uh, where people would go fishing. They were closed off and we got permission to land in them to refuel. So a lot of the time you'll either have a, a support truck following you with fuel or you just use good fuel management, you break off the power line, you record your spot where you're leaving and you head back to the nearest airport and refuel and then go back on task. In Australia, like there's huge amounts of power lines in remote areas. So a lot of it is, is truck supported. You just can't, you know, there's just no airfields to go and refuel. We've actually got a platform yeah, where yeah. the truck, the sides fold up and they, they land on top and it's like a mobile helipad. Do you have similar stuff in the US or is it all just sort of ground refuels? It's usually ground refuels. We do have similar stuff in the US, but that is usually for agricultural work yeah. where they'll um, refuel the aircraft and also refuel it with uh, whatever product they're using on the farms or the fields. We generally just have, it's uh, just a support truck and there's about three or 400 gallons of jet fuel on there which the aircraft that we fly, that's about 10 hours worth of flight time. So we've got plenty of fuel to go all day. Um, Though, what about patrolling in, in built-up areas? So where these you know, high-tension power lines are going through the, the suburbs and the cities, do you have to adjust anything different to that? Or, or is it, you know, do you have to let people know that you're coming through, does the power line company do that? Or you just treat it the same as, as more rural areas? Usually it's the um, power company that'll do that like uh, there's certain places where there's really not a need for an aircraft to patrol these lines someone from the power company can drive them and patrol them but if they do want an aircraft and it's a built-up area and there's if it, say there's a road below us usually we'd have some sort of traffic control in place we'd have um, local law enforcement there and maybe um, a representative from the power company that would just give us a boxed area so they're following us up. And if anything were to happen where we have to make an emergency landing, they can come down safely and they can control the scene so no one's getting close to the aircraft. Awesome. All right. Well, um, let's, yeah, well, I was going to say, let's move on to the, the LiDAR. Can you describe the the setup, like in terms of the hardware? Uh, how does it fit on the, on the 500 and someone I haven't seen it before? Can you just sort of give just a, a quick yeah. visual description? Uh, it's been a while. Um, LiDAR is a light detection and ranging. It's kind of like radar, except you're using lasers. And they build up a picture, a very accurate picture of uh, the power lines and the uh, right of way in the trees next to them. And when I was doing it about uh, nine years ago, it was a probably a box um, the size of a, an old computer. Like, a, like an old television and that was attached under the aircraft on a platform and you'd uh, fly about 800 feet about 40 to 50 knots and you had to watch your bank angle because if you banked too uh, aggressively like it only had a certain angle underneath it that these lasers would shoot out so if you banked too aggressively they'd just completely miss the power line so Things like steep turns, you just have to fly off the end of the power line and the observer operator would stop the LiDAR and you'd set up to come back on the power line. 
I, I find it pretty challenging flying. In the flat areas is fine, but when you're in mountainous or hilly areas, you need to maintain that 800 feet plus or minus 50 feet. So climbing up a mountain, you're almost paralleling the mountain or the hill where the power line comes up. So did you have a radar altimeter? How did you judge your height? That, that's where your crew comes in. Uh, you've just got a regular altimeter, but the crew, he's calling out your altitude table at 800 feet, 800 feet, 810, 820. And then once he starts getting 840, you start to come down a bit. So he's, if, if, you, if your altitude starts uh, increasing or decreasing, he starts calling out your altitude. And it's very similar to a radio altimeter that he's got. Gotcha. Okay. And I guess if, if no one's seen it or knows what you're doing, you're essentially looking at how close to the vegetation in many of these cases, one is for mapping, I guess, but one of the other roles there is to actually map how close the vegetation is getting to the power line to determine if people have to go yeah, and map, cut it. And that probably leads into yeah, something we'll talk about later on. Yeah, that, that uh, mapping how close the vegetation is getting and also, um, I, I believe it also does the sag of the power line. It can tell you how low the power line is getting to the ground. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, and again, surprising talking to electrical engineers, you know, when the, the load peaks up, like when people are all running their air conditioners and the dryers and everything in the evening and, and, the, and the voltage is, well, I don't know if it's the current or the voltage going through, but the, the wires heat up and there's a significant sag between uh, different days. Yeah, oh, definitely. Um, yeah, the lines will heat up if you, if you get ice on them in the wintertime, they'll sag quite considerably. Um, there's a lot of things that will affect them, like a lot of natural things that will affect them. As a powerline pilot, where would you go next? So say you've done some patrolling, you've done some LIDAR work, what's the next sort of operation on the power lines you'd, you'd move into normally? From there, if you want to stay in it, you're, you're looking at getting into more external loads. So that, that's more the patrolling side of the power lines. After that, you're looking at getting into the building the power lines, or uh, maintaining the power lines and that's where your external loads start coming like your your long lining your uh, platform work your external cargo work that's where all that will come into play all right and, let's um, let's cover the the, yeah. the hec let's let's cover the, the human external load type things again that's gonna be different between other countries and and what people have experienced so where would you use it and I guess what sort of how long is a line and what are some of the considerations there for you know the harness and communication and, and the hooks you actually need on the aircraft? A great question. At the moment there's a lot of changes with HEC in the United States. It used to be you could uh, anyone with a 133 certificate which is what you need to do external loads in the United States you could go and do um gym external cargo work. There were some accidents, there were some fatalities that started clamping down. So usually when you do HEC, depending on your equipment, you'll have a cargo hook and possibly secondary restraining system like a belly band in place. If you're working on this configuration, you also need a waiver or a letter of exemption from the FAA stating that you're allowed to do this type of work. Uh, because they've ruled that our car the cargo hooks that originally do this are not suitable or maybe that's not the word, they are not approved for human external cargo. So they're saying it's not approved, but if you take other safety considerations 
you can perform through the external cargo. So the, this was um, this started about maybe a couple of years ago. So a lot of the hook companies out there, they came up with something called a dual hook system. And basically all it is is two hooks on your aircraft and uh, some other hardware and rigging associated with it. And with that, it's a STC, the piece of equipment that you can carry people onto your external cargo. It's a big thing and it was a big thing in the power lines the last couple of years and uh, you're still seeing the changes come about. So the double hook gives you a, a redundancy if something goes wrong with the hook and it, and it releases. Yeah. Now, yeah, so you still have a manual and electric release in the cockpit for both hooks? They, they fire off the, the same thing or do, is there a, like a, a separate setup again to fire the second hook? It's, it's, they're both completely separate. You've got a manual and electrical release for your primary hook and then your secondary hook has still got a manual and an electrical release. So in the 500, like your manual release is usually like a, it's like a bicycle uh, brake in front of your cyclic. Yep. With the dual hook system, you've got two of those um, releases in front of you. Gotcha. And you've got your normal electrical release with your thumb, and I believe one of the systems has got another electrical release that's actually on the side of the manual release for an electrical. All right, so if you if you do need to release it, you've got two separate actions to release it. And, and what's the brief? Yeah, what's the briefing? How do you brief? You know, a critical emergency. When are you, when are you going to punch that off? And, and yeah, how, how do you how do you plan around that? Uh, I don't have much experience with the dual hook system. Most of the stuff I've been doing has been in the old style with the belly band, and it's sheer training and warning the guys through resource management. I always come into it like, there's been about, I don't have my notes, but there's probably been about five or six incidents with ETC in the United States. And it's training. I think uh, you, there's a whole, one of the uh, papers I wrote up, we discussed the emergency procedures on ETC and we came up with, three events, most of which include engine failure. You have an engine failure in forward flight. You would enter a low speed auto rotation and depending on what size of line you've got, like if you've got a 50 foot line, you're going to enter your flare about 100 feet, get those guys on the ground with whatever you can. And then what's ever left in your RPM is for yourself getting the aircraft on the ground. If you've got the guys on the structure, or I'll come on to that one last actually. If the guys are in a hover, like working on a wire and something goes wrong, you enter hovering out the ground effect or rotation. And you inform the guys that do not grab onto the wire. You just you can ride it out. And you, you tell them the, the best course of action for them to do is a parachute landing fall keep their knees and feet tight together when they make contact with the earth they roll it out. The third one would be the guys are on the structure. Even if they're not safety on the structure, you landed them on the structure and something goes wrong with the, the aircraft. That's where you'd actually release them. That's where you'd punch them off. Whereas you'd like 
you'd release the hook, you'd release the belly band, and you'd leave them on the structure. And a couple of years ago, or just over a year and a half ago, there was actually a case like that in the United States where the aircraft hits uh, hit another structure and there was a catastrophe for the aircraft, but the pilot actually jettisoned the guys on the structure. Usually, unfortunately, the linemen uh, have fatalities with HEC, but in this case, uh, the linemen lived. They, they were left safely on the structure and came down and uh, did what they could. Gotcha. In terms of the jobs, we're going to do that. So, uh, and I guess the playoff here would have a platform or a some kind of set where they could step off the skids onto the, onto the top of a tower. But yeah. when when would you? So, what sort of operations are they are the lines been doing when they're when they're on that external uh, cargo hook? So, are they actually working on the line like mid strand. Are you taking it from tower to tower? And sometimes you're working on the line mid-span, maybe you're doing a space or two with them. Generally, it's not the preferred method. A lot of the time, a job a couple of years ago, we were changing our insulators and there was really not to, there was a lot of a place for the guys to work on. So we had to steady them in with ladders. We call these things hook ladders. And we'd HEC the guys and the ladders to the structure. And you feed the ladder down into the structure and you land it on the structure and then they can come down and actually work on different parts of the power line or the hardware. Are they on, on power line. Are they on a radio headset? How, how do you talk to them? A lot of people just use heads and hand signals. Yep. I prefer, I do not like that. It's a good backup method, I think. I think there needs to be a change in the United States at the moment. A couple of companies are using Bluetooth communication. The nice thing about the Bluetooth communication is it's all hands-free. Yep. You, you set it up with the pilot, you set it up with the lineman, and it's all noise cancelling. So a lot of the time, you're having a conversation with the lineman just as easy as you and I are having a conversation right now. And it's such a difference talking to someone versus going off someone's head and hand signals. Oh, absolutely. And I'm trying to picture, like, you're looking out over the side, looking down, and I, I've done very, very little external load operations at all, but I'm trying to picture holding someone steady where you, you're, I don't know, you, you, you're 50 feet off the ground is the wire, and then you're above that as well. Like, that seems like a really hard, I mean, all this power line stuff is pretty hard when you're hovering close to the wire, but I'm just trying to picture holding someone in midair as they're working on a, on a line, which is itself suspended in the air. That's getting up there in terms of difficulty. Initially, when I first started seeing it, I thought it'd be impossible. I thought it'd be really hard. There's no way I'd ever be able to do it. Uh, it eventually comes to you in clicks. No, it, it's very doable. You just pick out your reference points. But one thing I'd say is you're taking in, when you get down to that, you're taking in a small picture. You're not looking so much at the big picture, but you're taking in the small picture. Sure. To hold it there. Instead of them um, taking in that big picture, so everything needs to be in order, in order before you actually take the guys in to do your work. Like uh, it's almost back to basics. You're taking them in. You're checking your warning lights are out. Your engine temperatures and pressures are in the green. You're checking your fuel, and uh, you're making sure you've got sufficient power to take the guys in there, and also sufficient power to get them out if need be. 
Gotcha. What uh, would spraying be in there as well? Is something you do at this point in terms of, of washing conductors, or is that something you guys do? Yeah, yeah. Um, I've washed conductors. Yeah, um, yeah. I've done that. Yeah, that uh, it, it, you're really loading up the aircraft uh, doing that because um, water weighs quite a bit. But uh, that's something I've done in the past. I know that gets done down in Australia as well. Yeah. Do you want to um, again just talk to people who are listening in who may not have seen this before or only just seen it in pictures? Can you just talk through generally what it looks like from the cockpit in terms of sort of how much fuel you can take, the refuel in terms of carrying like a belly tank of water, how you actually spray the water on, and in terms of moving the aircraft, or is it just the the operator moves the boom? Yeah, those bits and pieces. Last time I did that, we're probably going to be the MD five hundred holds about four hundred thirty five pounds worth of fuel. We'd fill it up to about 200, 250 pounds and get the water tank up as full as we could. That was getting us up to pretty high up there in the weight. Not not in max gross, but we're still high up there. Your operator is uh, sitting behind you. So in the 500, you're sitting in the left seat and the uh, lineman is sitting exactly uh, directly behind you. And he's got like a pressure washer set up. There's about a uh, 15, 16 foot boom coming out and then you've got your water going out the end of that. So uh, you can't, you're washing these insulators. The reason you're washing these insulators a lot of the time is bird crap. People, the birds start crapping on these insulators and very soon they're not going to become insulators anymore. They'll be conductive with all the residue on them. So they're not doing their job. So we'll go up and we'll wash these insulators and we're using um, I believe deionized water it's a uh, special water you don't really want to use salt water or anything like that but uh, you're going up you're using this water you start and um, usually we'd always start the top insulators and you just concentrate in three bells on a 500 kilovolt line is usually about 18 bells and you just concentrate in three at a time so you, you Bring the aircraft into a hover and the guy would, uh, the lineman at the back would situate the boom. He'd unlock it because when you're ferrying out to it, you locks it in place so it's not moving up and down. When you get next to the power line, he'll unlock it and then he'll just start spraying about three insulators at a time. And once they're clean, we'll come down, do another three, and you're moving the aircraft at the same time. Like once he's done three, you're coming down just a couple of inches in altitude so he can do the next three and all the way down and then the rest of them. If it's horizontal construction, whereas the power lines are all horizontal, at some point you're going to come in between the power lines so you can get that middle insulator set. And uh, that can be it definitely gets me out of my comfort zone going in between the lines. You're checking the static wires above you. You're checking your reference points on the line so you can actually get the aircraft in there and then advance towards the insulator and get them cleaned. So you're talking about there where you've got like two transmission lines running parallel and you've got to move in between the insides of the towers or are you talking about a different setup there? Now, um, usually you'd have three if if it's done horizontal, you'd have three different uh, three different lines running parallel to each other, and you need to get that centre line, and that's what we call going inside the box. 
Oh, okay, so you're still talking do... one, still talking one power pole or one one transmission tower, but you're just talking about trying to get to the inside. Yeah, one structure. Okay. Yeah. yeah, one structure, and you're coming inside a set of wires to get to the central one. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> That's gonna be, yeah. And well, I guess like this one spraying normally, like my picturing, you don't actually overlap the wire. It's when we start getting the platform work and things like that, or you're actually dropping someone off on the tower where you've actually got an overlap of your rotor disc with the wire or the structure. With the the spraying, it still looks like you're a little bit off the structure, except for that that middle insulator. Oh yeah, yeah. You're still you're still like off the structure, and yeah, definitely. Cool. Okay. Well, let's. I guess it's just a progressive amping up. Do you have you done the platform work then when you're actually uh, working with your your disc over the wire? Yeah, yeah, I've done that. Yeah, um, you use that platform up for all sorts of things. Uh, yeah, sometimes you'll use it for hand-on inspections. Uh, you'll use it for marker balls, spacers, actually fixing a wire. There's a lot of things you can use the platforms for. Okay, what well, do you want to take us through a, a marker ball? Operation. So you know you're on the ground. Uh, if you want to describe what the platform looks like, how you load it up, and and where the the linesman is. Yeah. Um. Usually the platform will be put on probably back at the airport. Your your mechanic will help you put that on when you do your pre-flight. That's now included in your pre-flight, making sure the nuts and bolts are in place and the platform secure, the seatbelt on the platform secure, and then uh, you'll fly out to your job site. You'll do your pre-job brief, and then you'll go up, start your marker balls, and generally that starts out basic measurements because yeah, your client will give you a list of where these marker balls are going on, and usually you'll you'll go up and you can either use a a counter wheel, which you actually put on the wire and you bring that down, and um, haven't used one of them for a while, or you'll use a GPS and uh, you'll just measure out each individual footage. And the guys will mark the wire with the tape or something. So we know the spaces for the marker balls. Then you come down and these marker balls are all prepared and it's almost like putting just like a clamshell. One end shut, the other end's open, and the alignment will be on the platform. And the other alignment will hand on this marker ball. And you'll come into the wire and if it's close to the structure, like maybe 60, 100 feet away from the structure. So it's generally a lot easier because the wire will not move as much. When you get out mid-span, there's a lot of movement in the wire sometimes. Um, Is it due to your rotor wash or just, the, just the, the wire swinging in the breeze? It's due, it, um, it can be due to your rotor wash once you get that ball in there. It's the little movements that the aircraft makes and then the lineman will move the wire, then you try and prevent these movements, and sometimes it just gets worse and worse. Um, you try and stop it, but you're in the wrong position. So everything really needs to stay in equilibrium in the center. So it's holding the aircraft steady, and one thing that will make the wire move a lot, I think, is if you concentrate on the wire too much. Uh, generally, I find trying to find a spot on the ground and I'll stare through the wire onto a reference point on the ground. Yep. And Did that you... works out well. The worst is when it's over water. <laughs> I can imagine. I've seen some videos of, of guys doing it, and it looks hard work. But do, do you pick up the wire at the tower and then follow it down to where you're putting the marker ball on, or do you come up mid-span and 
do you come up level and move across? Do you come in above it and then move down a position? How do you actually get to the, the working position? Yeah, uh, you'll pick up you'll pick it up at the tower. You'll you confirm the number of the tower, and this is all done beforehand. When you actually get the ball in place, you'll come in parallel. I usually come in parallel with the wire. You do your checks, temperatures and pressures, make sure you've got enough fuel, and make sure you've got enough power, and then you just bring the guy in slowly, and you bring the wire above the ball initially, and then you maneuver the aircraft. The aircraft will then come up, so the wire is in between the ball and the lineman. And then he'll take one of his hands, usually his left hand, he'll take that off the ball, bring his hand over the wire, and open up the ball as a clamshell. Once he does that, he'll pull the ball onto the wire. At the same time, you're going to move the aircraft just slightly to the right away from the wire so that he can get it in place. Once it's in place, He's going to start um, securing it to the to the wire. Do you cock off in your to face wire a little bit? Like, are you trying to position your tail rotor away, or you've got to be at ninety degrees so that the guy on the platform can actually, you know, work without too much difficulty? It, it, it helps that you're uh, parallel. For him, it definitely helps that you're parallel with the wire. Sometimes, myself, especially if you're new, everyone's afraid of hitting that tail rotor, and quite rightfully so. You'll usually see the guy putting a wee bit of left pedal and can the aircraft just a little bit. And if you're parallel uh, with that wire and uh, you stay parallel, generally that tail is at least four feet away from that wire. Yep. So you're, you're not going to go out through this in high winds or anything like that. If it's a windy day, you're going to call it for the day and go back to the hotel or do something else. Well, that's um, where I was going to go next is we haven't spoken yeah. about that. Like normally these are early starts. I'm guessing so you can get up, get the work done before you sort of get your, you know, your wind or you're picking up later in the day. So a lot of guys I know, like you, you know, post photos in the morning. It's it's normally a dark start in the morning. Yeah, generally, yeah, yeah, you'll you'll do your weather checks the night before, and sometimes you'll do the weather checks the night before, and like, hey guys, it ain't going to happen tomorrow. Let's find something else to do, and you're going to do something else on the job. If your weather's looking good the night before, you'll get up early, get an early start, get a good safety brief in, and then get the guys up there and get the balls on. So we've covered a bunch of stuff there. I guess there's, there's tower transfer, uh, if that's something. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, um, tower transfer. Yeah, that was a that was a big thing for me. I thought, yeah, transferring the guys onto tower is pretty cool. Uh, or the or the wire itself. Sometimes you transfer them directly onto the wire. Usually, we'll have a skid step which is it's almost like uh, maybe the diameter of the skateboard, or not diameter, but um, width of the skateboard. And that goes over the skid. And it's an STC piece of equipment on the other side of the aircraft. And the right-hand side will have counterweight, because uh, you're putting a 200-pound person on the left-hand skid. You need to counterweight that, so you're within your weight and balance limitations. And it's, it's, uh, you come in, you pick your reference point, and before you commit to going in, again, you're doing your checks, do the power checks, and you're trimming out the aircraft. One good tip I got told, whatever way the lineman goes is what way the trim's going. So when you come up to the tower, he's going to bond on. As soon as he bonds on, then he's going to take one of his lanyards and clip onto the tower. And then he's going to unclip from the aircraft. And you'll 
make eye contact with him, he'll give you the nod, and you'll give him a nod back that everything's good to go, and he'll actually step off the aircraft, and it's like stepping onto a boat or a canoe. It's all very uh, smooth, and you follow him with the trim. So if they're getting off, and if they're getting off, you're pushing the trim to the left side because they're going to the left. Well, one thing I've noticed is generally the small guys that aren't as smooth, usually the big 200, 300-pound guys with all the gear on them, they're very smooth getting off the aircraft because they know they're heavy. Usually the smaller guys are just uh, get off very nonchalant. Fair enough. Okay, and, and my understanding from that is they, they'll do something on that tower, then you come back, pick them up, move them to the next one. And do you leapfrog? Do you have, like, two sets, like, one group's working on a tower and you go grab the other ones and move them and then come back and you sort of leapfrog along? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, all the time. Usually, like, if they're changing out the top wire, the static wire, and transfer the guys off, you maybe you'll transfer one or two guys onto a tower and uh, you'll either come back to the LZ, pick up another set and transfer them onto a tower. And by the time you've completed that second transfer, hopefully the first transfer that you did, the guys are ready to move again. And you just go back and you pick them up and it's the exact opposite. You'll come in, you'll take the bond from the aircraft and bond it onto the, the static. And then they'll transfer and you start leapfrogging them. And it's a very efficient method uh, of doing it. Gotcha. Awesome. Okay, take in whichever order you want to, but we've got the, the blades, which are a pretty interesting kind of tie in there. It doesn't, assuming they do other vegetation other than just power lines, but that would be the, the crux of it for the aerial saws. The the stringing work, uh, and I guess some of that ties in with that construction work too. I know there was a, a video that did the rounds on Facebook maybe 12 months ago of a, a 500 coming in with a pulley block and dropping that off and then threading the wire through the pulley block and, and moving on. And again, lots and lots of commentary about the, the skill of the, of the person involved because it's quite fine work. Uh, yeah, which I don't know. You want to tackle any of those and take us through those? Yeah, well, uh, the saw stuff I'm actually not too familiar with. I, I do work for a company that specializes in saw, but I'm more on the power line side. It's me and another pilot. We are more specialized in the power line side of things. I have went out and looked at it, and it's uh, it's very impressive to watch. Um, well, what I might do, I might get you. Uh, I might get an intro off you to one of those guys who who does the saw all the I time. I think that'd be better. Yeah, yeah, he'd be better to talk to one of those guys about it. Um, as far as the the stringing, the class C that that's considered a class C load because it's attached to the ground at some point and also attached to the aircraft. Uh, generally, that's how they'll get a wire in the air. They'll use a helicopter. It's very efficient. Usually, you'll have, uh, depending on the structures, you can have anywhere between four or eight wires to pull. You'll remove the hook from the belly and you'll add, put it on the side of the aircraft and there's a special adapter called uh, it's an FTC piece of equipment. You put it on the side of the aircraft and then you put the, the attached the hook to it. So your hook's now on the side of your the aircraft. So you still got your normal... You line. So in the cockpit, you still got your normal electrical, normal manual release. It's just now it'll, it'll operate yeah. the hook on the side. It's all on the side. And one thing you also do is you, you always want to have a breakaway swivel right next to that hook that breaks away at 1,800 pounds. If the load, is where, if the load gets more than 1,800 pounds, it's just going to... Uh, there's a pin in there and it's going to shear 1800 pounds okay so um yeah you'll have that in there to protect yourself 
And I've seen a, uh, it's like a Bluetooth hook. I guess you can use it for external load as well, where you can actually have a display in the cockpit or some kind of indication where you can actually see how much load is being pulled. Is that something you guys yeah, use? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I've got those. I've uh, not really used them. We've got load cells, but they are only attached when the hook is mounted in the belly. When we put it on the side, the load cell, in my experience, is not attached or is not connected. Okay. One thing I've noticed, though, uh, usually you go off your power, like your torque, how much torque are you pulling? And generally, you should never be pulling past uh, the green to do a side pull. The, the big things about doing these side pulls is doing your safety brief in the morning. Uh, you've got a guy on the machine that's actually feeding the rope out. You're in constant radio communication with him, and he's got a break because you don't want this uh, rope or this wire scraping over the ground. And, uh, at the same time, you don't want it too tight that you're pulling too much power. Yep. So, so you're talking with the guy on the rope machine. And have you got the hook on the, so in the 500, you'll, you'll see in the left is the, the pilot. Have you got the hook on the left or the right of the, the helicopter? The hook's on the left. The hook's on the left as well. Okay. So you're, you're looking um, looking back so back along the line or back along the, the line that you're pulling and then traveling. Yeah. Every time I've been instructed this, I've always, I've always told the guy, it's almost like walking backwards. I spend a lot of time looking to where I'm coming from, looking at the wire and making sure that that's uh, not rubbing against the ground. It's not getting stuck in any equipment. And they usually always use an observer when doing a class C or if I'm doing a cycle and that can be another pilot or that can be an experienced lineman. And a lot of these linemen know the aircraft very well. They are looking at where you're going to and they'll, once you start getting close to a structure, they'll start giving you a call out and they'll make sure your altitude's good that you're going to clear that structure. So your side pulling, you've already hooked up and then you're moving the aircraft along and you're looking at where you're coming from, where you're going to. And the lineman or the pilot on the right-hand side, he's going to start giving you a countdown when you get to your structure. He'll be like at 100 feet, 50 feet, 25 feet, that's you over the top of the structure. And when he's giving you this, at the same time, you're also telling the guy on the brakes of the rope machine to start putting the brakes on and start slowing it down because you're going to start coming to a stop. Ah, okay, so, so if they don't put the brakes on, then the, the line will keep um, paying out and basically yeah. touch the ground. Yeah. yeah, the line will keep tight. It makes it easier for you. And you'll maybe be between um, 25 and 50 feet away from the structure. And then you'll start bringing the line down uh, into um, it's called a traveler or a dolly. It's like a pulley system. And there's a one-way lock on it. It's almost like putting a rope through a carabiner. Things like you put your rope through this one-way lock and then you put it into the, the pulley system. And once it's in there, you start moving along again and you repeat the entire process. Yep. So again, just picturing if you're listening, so you're coming almost pulling the, the line with the helicopter to its side of the pulley, book, pulley block, moving the helicopter forward to take the wire into it. And as it moves through, it basically locks off and sits on top of this, um, yeah, like a big pulley block on the, on the tower. And as you then keep pulling yeah. the wire, the wire sits in the in the top groove of the pulley block and just rolls across the top of the pulley. Yeah. Yeah, and you keep doing that until you finish up and uh, the bad guy can meet you at the other end. 
you'll take it through the last pulley block and then you'll give them some slack and then you'll hold it there and you'll be in communication with them. You'll tell them to stop the pull. So the guy in the brake machine, the rope machine, he's going to stop that pull. And then there'll be a guy up in a bucket truck and he will tie off the rope. And once he's tied off the rope and secured it, you can then bring the aircraft back in. And the funny thing about doing this, um, like an in instrument training, everyone warns you about getting the leads. Uh, like um, if you're in an unusual attitude and you come into a level attitude, you get the leads. I never really experienced that in my instrument training. The first time I ever experienced that, still go today, is doing side pulls. Oh, because you've been so so long, basically banked over while you're pulling yeah. to then come back to to level attitude yeah. to to hover and land. Yeah, it feels weird. Yeah, you can be banked over for uh, 45, 50 minutes. And then when they tie off the rope, you start bringing the aircraft in and you think you're going to stay at this 10 degrees to the right attitude. And then all of a sudden you're level. And it just uh, feels very strange. <laughs> okay. Is there something about the fuel as well? Because you're on that angle. Is there... Is there something you have to think about with the, the fuel tanks? I don't know if it's a 500 thing or different aircraft, but because you're on that angle of the fuel is going to go one side and you have different fuel low lights and things? Yeah, definitely. Um, in the 500, you can, when doing a side pull, you can only rely on half your fuel. That, that, that's the rule of thumb. So you, if you've got just in your main tank, if you top that off, that's you've got about two hours worth of fuel. The maximum amount of time you want to decide pulling is one hour. And you never want to be going above one hour. If you've got a big, long pull to do, you start you start thinking about breaking that up, either using a piece of equipment called a half needle, or you start thinking about a point where you can bring this rope to the ground and the guys can lock it off, where you can then go for fuel. Yeah, there's been a couple of instances where the aircraft have uh, claimed out and they've still got at least 100 pounds worth of fuel on board. And it's because they're banked over. The pickup for the 500 is on the left side, and you're banked over to the right side. So you only ever rely on one hour of fuel on a full tank, and you have to make sure your gas cap is closed properly. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah. I, I can't remember if I heard the, the low fuel float, if it's on the left or the right, but I, I guess that's either going to come on very, very late or, or, or early. As well, just doing on one. Yeah, it's on the your, your low fuel's on your left hand side, and you should never have your low fuel light coming on in a side pull. You'd have to be banked over quite extreme to have that coming on, and you'd also be probably breaking your one hour time limit. Yeah, yeah, it's it's that fuel management is definitely something to think about all the time, regardless of what uh, profile you're flying and what um, tasking you're doing. All right, fair enough. Is there any other big kind of buckets that the, the powerline operations fall into that we haven't sort of covered? Uh, we covered uh, Class A, uh, which is the platform, uh, human external cargo. Uh, Class B is, is just regular long lining. And uh, no, I think we've covered all Class C, the side pulling. No, no, we've covered most of it there. Yeah. We spoke, I can't remember. There's always new bits that come up. Yeah, I can't remember if it was an email or when we first chatted, but. Uh, and I, I don't know where to go back and find it. So maybe if someone's listening, if they've seen this video, I remember seeing a video where they did some really early testing of the the power operations. And it might have been like a, a substation farm, but they had a 
like a, a wooden tower basically constructed, which had a helicopter sitting on top in between the transmission lines or in between two towers and just had a, a 500 on top of this platform just running. And I, and I think it was like a proof of concept as they were starting doing this work just to make sure that the aircraft would run okay and maybe, you know, wouldn't arc out the, the wires and, and, you know, the radios and things would still work. And yeah, they essentially built this platform yeah. just to do like a ground run. But I don't know if this one's, I can remember seeing the video, but I have no idea how to track it down. There's nothing on YouTube that I can see. So if anyone's listening and, and knows a video like that, just the, the history of those, those early work on, on the power lines. I remember you telling me about that video. Um, one of the guys that trained me, uh, he was one of the pioneers of this work in the United States. Yeah, that's one other thing that you do as a live work. And you'll come in and you'll bond on to a live power line. And usually that's doing a board work, whether you're doing marker balls, you're actually tearing a part of the wire, or you're doing spacers. And you wear um, a thing called a hot suit. It's made up of Nomex and stainless steel. It's like a Faraday cage. And uh, you wear that to protect yourself from uh, some of the electric shocks or the electricity that's running around your body. It's basically like a bird on a wire. Once you bond on the attach, you're part of the circuit. We didn't speak about that, but yeah, often the guys that get on the platform will have like a, I don't know, it's a wand or a, a pole or something. And as they get close, they, they bond on. Yeah, you they'll, they'll have a wand. Yeah, you'll see, you'll see them, uh, yeah, you see the lightning come at the end of the almost. Yeah, um, you bring them in and this constant communication up just before the point they bond on because the uh, mics and helmets have been blown that way. So uh, you'll, get, you'll get level with the power line and you'll ask them, you good to go, good to go, and they're right, coming in, and then usually conversation stops until we're actually bonded onto the power line. Like, if you have a wand out, you'll get, you see the electricity start connecting. And then once you get to attach the wand to the power line, and then you'll take a clamp and attach the aircraft to the power line. And then that's you part of the circuit, then you're free to talk again. <laughs> And when I first heard it, I thought, you know, I couldn't understand why they wouldn't just turn the power off. So you'd go up, do the work and, and, and rather have to do it while there's actually electricity running. But it's, it's just, it, it's so difficult. My understanding is for power line companies to actually turn off power on those, on those big spans. It's not a, not a simple operation. Um, it's, it, yeah, it, the, yeah, um, yeah, sometimes they just, they can sometimes give you outages, but they need to have somewhere else for this power to go. And sometimes they just don't have that asset available to them. Like uh, it'd, be, it'd be like your motorway or your freeway closing down, but you do not have an alternate route. So everything's, so nothing's flowing. Yep. So a lot of the time you just leave it running and you go in there when it's hot. Look, that's that's pretty awesome coverage. I think there's a whole heap of stuff there too about on, on some of the hurricane work and things you did, but what I might do is we'll hook up another time and uh, yeah, chat about some of the other bits and pieces and, and some of the, the hurricane uh, things you went through and other bits and pieces that you've uh, you've done. But I think we might call it pretty much there just on the, on the power line side. No, yeah, that was good, thank you. Is there anything else you wanted to just close off on, on the power line work? Like I say, a, a lot of people do want to get into this. I think the biggest thing to get into is networking. Get to know the companies that do it. Get to know some of the pilots that fly for it, and uh, and talk with them. And um, it's it's something that me in the past I've had a cowboy attitude to it, but I do not see it that way for a lot of companies anymore. It's it's a very, I think 
the risks are definitely there, so you need to do a good risk mitigation to do this stuff safely. So every morning you're doing your safety briefings, you're doing your risk assessment, uh, you're bringing into play crew resource management. If anyone doesn't like it, you don't go. Your fuel management, not just the pilot is keeping track of his fuel. Uh, most of these linemen that you're flying are pretty savvy with the aircraft. They'll know roughly how much it burns and they'll be reminding you of your fuel. So something with so many risks involved, there has to be a lot of safety protocol in place. A big thanks to David McCall for his time and sharing his experience. If you've got any questions for David, or if you are working powerlines yourself and can add any of your own stories, then jump over to the website at rotarywingshow.com. Look for episode 91 and leave a, a post there. There's a couple of photos again that Dave has sent through so you can see again what he looks like and, and some of the work there in the MD500s. As this goes to air, Dave is out there doing disaster relief operations for Hurricane Isai Eas on the eastern seaboard of the US. So spare a thought for all the crews involved out there. Dave is the, the chief pilot at Rotorblade LLC, and, and fingers crossed, he's going to get one of the specialist aerial soar pilots there at the company back on the show to talk about how all that works. Okay, so we've been talking power lines and flying right next to them. So it's probably a good spot to remind ourselves again that just what a threat wire strikes are to helicopters because of the, the nature of a lot of the flying that we do. Dave has spoken a little bit about the risk management that they go through and the workup for pilots before they can do these types of operations. Here in Australia in the last week, we've just lost another pilot in a helicopter from a wire strike during aerial spraying. I did a, a bit of Googling and came with two different reports on Australian wire strike accident statistics. So the first one, is from the, the then named Bureau of Air Safety Investigations and it covers 495 helicopter accidents, so just under 500 accidents there between the, the 20 year period 1969 to 1988. And number one in terms of accidents was engine failure or malfunction with 21% of accidents. And then number two was hard landing with 9%, and then number three was wire strikes also with 9%. So the third leading cause of accidents in that particular period for helicopters was wire strikes. Then a second report was then by the ATSB that covers the period 1994 through to 2004. So essentially a 10 year period there. And it looked at 120 wire strikes by general aviation aircraft and 51 of those Accidents were rotary wing, which makes up about 43% of the, the wire strikes. Now, when you consider the number of hours flown between fixed wing and rotary, fixed wing are flying about you know, seven times the, the annual hours than the rotary fleet here in Australia. So to have almost half the, the accidents means that helicopters are just hugely overrepresented in the statistics there for wire strikes. In this particular latest accident, the, the news reporting is that the pilot's family weren't even able to get to his hospital bedside because of the COVID-19 travel restrictions and the restrictions on visitors to hospitals. So my heart really goes out to you know, what that family has gone through and is, is still going through and to the, to the friends of the pilot. For the, the rest of us, 
we've just got to you know work that much harder every flight and, and keep right on top of our game so that we don't put our own families or those of our co-workers through something similar if it's not ag work or power and ops then normally we can challenge ourselves in terms of you know do we really need to be that low to get the job done and, and can we do it up above and outside of the the wired environment this episode was made possible by the support of the the following people and if you want to throw even a, a dollar an episode at what is a, a pretty grassroots effort here you can have a look at rotarywingshow.com forward slash support so please send some appreciative thoughts to benjamin jeff mike bill jason brent michael aj hal john mark shannon Carolyn, eric jake chris gareth heath kevin tony peter jason michael and rendell thank you that all goes towards paying the amazon bandwidth bill each month and it was 364 gigabytes in uh, july not far now until sunday the 16th of august which is world helicopter day for 2020 again a very very different year and, and day for for this time around uh, given global pandemics uh, so the, at this stage i don't have many details on actual live events uh, so if you are holding an event and it's safe in your country and the situation allows then you know send the details through at worldhelicopterday.com we can help promote it there but i think for most of us we're going to be pretty much participating online for this one so again pick out a, a favorite photo have it all armed ready to go on social media with the hashtag world helicopter day on the 16th of august and we can try and see if we can get that uh, trending and yeah share a bit of passion about the industry that you're in and the helicopters and the machines that we that we fly and what we do i hope you learned something new about the different parts of the helicopter industry today thanks again very much for coming along for the ride <laughs>